Hello, welcome to another amazing episode with the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast group. We are so glad that you guys are here with us yet again. Uh, and you know, well, you know what? First time listeners, hey guys, I'm Jay. I'm one. I'm one half of the dynamic duo that makes this uh, podcast work, and I have my co-host with me here, Dr. Cole here. All right, and guys, happy holidays. Oh hey, yeah, happy t- holidays. Yeah, the Everybody. time is here. Yeah, the time is here, man. Um, Cody, I'm man, on call man. Christmas. Man. Are, are, you, are you working this week? Well, yeah, I got to work this week, but I'm not on call Christmas, but I'm on call um, New Year's. So uh, it's pretty much where the hospital that I'm at, you you try to get one or the other off. Right. And uh, yeah, so I, I chose Christmas since I have a little, little kid and the yeah. other person, they don't have any kids. So they were, they were pretty cool with that. Well, there you go, man. That's that's how it is. Yeah. So what you going to do, man? You know, with COVID, man, I, I know you like to usually yearly go and sit on Santa Claus lap, man. How you going to make it? <laughs> I mean, this guy's starting early. Uh, no, man, I'm uh, I'm on call Christmas Day. I have some family coming down here, uh, you know, for the week. So that'll be pretty nice. Uh, but, you know, just relaxing out, man. What, what about you? What, what did you what did you put in for your uh, Christmas list? Uh, Man, nothing. How about I just I mean, this just happened probably like a couple of hours ago. I dropped my dog on iPad, so I'm currently surf, searching through the web to see if I can buy me another one. I, I'm not, I don't even think I'm gonna ask anyone to buy me one. I just I just want it like now. <laughs> is it yeah. fixable or is it just it's done? Nah, man, it's it's a wrap. That thing cracked all different kind of ways. So it's either two fifty to fix the screen or just buy another one. I'm like, man, you might as well just buy another one. Might as well. Might as well. Anyway. No reason to keep on hearing me gripe about my eye, my iPad. I'll, I'll get over <laughs> it. Uh, Cody, man, we have another uh, a good show in store. Tell them about it. Yeah, we have Dr. Uh, Dr. Dane Salazar. He's going to talk to us a little bit about total shoulder orthoplasty. Uh, he did his medical school at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He did his residency in Loyola and fellowship at the Barnes-Jewish Hospital slash Washington Hospital uh, University School of Medicine in Shoulder and elbow surgery, and he really did a great job talking about an intro, introduction to total shoulder, total shoulder arthroplasty. One uh, to do it, you know, we kind of actually go about a little bit of technical aspects of, as far as the glenoid and the humerus. And it's a really a good episode, and for those of you listening, I hope you guys also tune in and check out the YouTube channel as well. Um, you know, it has great visuals that you can actually, you know, take a look at and see what some of the things that we're talking about. And also, since we're in the holiday spirit, I hope you guys checked out our blog post this week on gifts to get your orthopedic friends. So if you have if you're in orthopedics, which you most likely are, and if you have family members that are wondering things to get you, you can just say, hey, check out this blog post. Uh, Without further ado, enjoy this episode on total shoulder orthoplasty. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Okay, I would like to welcome you all to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We have another great one in store for you guys today. Uh, We have with us Dr. Salazar. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to a lively discussion. Absolutely. Even our, our quick conversation off air, I mean, you got us really uh, hyped up about, about this talk, I, I mean, within five minutes. So I'm pretty sure our listeners are going to really love it. Um, 
you know, but we always start off before we get too far into the topic. We just ask some questions just to kind of get to know our guests a little bit more so that our uh, listeners can kind of get a, a vibe for how, who you are and what you're about. Um, so what made you choose your specialty that you, that you decided to go into as far as uh, upper extremity? So I would say uh, it started first and foremost with uh, mentorship. I had a lot of great uh, mentors uh, in the total uh, in the shoulder and elbow community, um, and throughout my training, I really felt myself gravitating towards that topic. I would uh, I would gravitate towards a shoulder and elbow uh, journal articles to read for pleasure uh, when studying for in training uh, as a trainee. I would gravitate to question banks in either sports and shoulder and elbow. Um, and for me, anatomically, uh, it, uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, it didn't feel like a chore uh, to hone my craft. And I really enjoyed uh, the uh, surgeries that came with it and the gamut that, that you can do in our subspecialty, everything from fracture work to arthroplasty work to arthroscopy work to tendon transfers to peripheral and brachial plexus nerve um, type of work. Uh, and so it really uh, intrigued me uh, that you could uh, have a very diverse practice, both in the type of cases and patients that you saw uh, and age, um, but at the same time uh, became an expert in an area of the body and could really uh, be a referral base for the community that you support. And yeah, you know, I've always thought that around the elbow, and I don't know, around the shoulder as well, but definitely the elbow. It just seemed like a lot of people are a little bit more hesitant to to operate around that area. And, you know, they kind of prefer to have a, like you say, a specialist deal with this. So, uh, I, like you said, I bet that is a, a very uh, a very good field to go to as far as getting, uh, you know, getting a lot of patients referred over to you for dealing with different pathology around the elbow and shoulder. Yeah, in my practice, I see obviously a lot of patients that are referred by primary care doctors and self-referrals, uh, but I also have a large percentage of patients that are referred by other orthopedic surgeons uh, to take care of uh, complex uh, problems about the shoulder and elbow, which um, are uh, very uh, challenging um, and uh, provide excellent training opportunities for our residents and our fellow. I think that's great. And I think uh, the way that you explain your specialty and, and um, the wide diverse, of thing, wide diverse array of things that you can do, I think that's definitely attractive uh, to that specialty and anybody listening, they may, they may, um, this may be something that, that wakes them up as something that they may want to do. Uh, but moving on to the next question that I have for you. Uh, is there any advice that you would give yourself at age 25 or, you know, when you first started off doing your training, you know, looking back at it now, is there anything that you would go back and give yourself, or if you see, if you know somebody else is 25 advice that you would give them? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the best advice I would have is um, to really have an introspective understanding of yourself. Uh, and what I mean by that is have a, have a working knowledge of what are your personal goals? What are your professional goals? What does your ideal practice look like? Because I think oftentimes people will 
start to get a little bit of tunnel vision. I want to live in this town or um, I want to join this practice and four or five years ago from now they may have this need. So maybe I should go into that subspecialty so that I can join that practice. And really, I tell people, you should uh, know what you want and really work from that moving forward and the doors that should open themselves will open themselves. Um, and so the best advice I have is don't make up your mind too early in your training um, because you may be very surprised uh, to, to what you gravitate to or what comes naturally to you or what you want to do for a career. Orthopedics is extremely rewarding uh, and we get to wake up and take care of patients and render world-class um, operative and non-operative care, which I really consider a privilege. Um, and so it's really important that we make decisions that give us the most reward professionally, but also personally as we move forward in our life. So my best advice would be have a good understanding of who you are, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are the things you can work on, and what are your goals, and then craft a strategy to get that ideal practice. I think those are all excellent points, and uh, that's maybe something I may go back and rewind this past minute and, and listen to that again and really uh, take that to heart. And when you're trying to think of what you want to do, especially with your life, because just like you said, this is a, this is a lifelong thing, and orthopedics is a great specialty. So I think that was another great answer. Yeah, it's and, actually uh, something to kind of live by even outside of, you know, orthopedics. So, yeah, absolutely a great response. Uh, but to end it on, last question, to end it on something orthopedic-based, what do you think is your favorite case that you would like to do? Yeah, it, it's a running joke at our residency um, because uh, I often say this is my favorite case to do. Uh, and the problem is it's, it's a myriad of different cases. Um, but the topic uh, that we picked tonight is probably one of uh, my favorites. Uh, uh, total shoulder arthroplasty um, is, in my opinion, a very cerebral procedure. Um, and philosophically, I look at it not as a um, hardware surgery, but more of a soft tissue surgery where we implant hardware, where the soft tissue balancing and the preoperative templating and the preoperative planning and the intraoperative um, plan and troubleshooting is exceptionally important for the patient to have uh, a good outcome and maximize um, the, the function that that person's gonna have. And I don't think that's true of all surgeries. There are other surgeries that I do that are much more forgiving. Um, and uh, the, the, I would contrast it to the reverse shoulder arthroplasty, which in my opinion um, is more of a hardware surgery. Um, their soft tissue balancing uh, uh, is much less important. We're bypassing the function of the rotator cuff. Uh, we're um, changing uh, the biomechanics of the shoulder, and it's a much different procedure. So um, I enjoy really all surgeries uh, that I do. I really uh, feel that shoulder and elbow for me was not a job or a vocation or even a profession, uh, but for me was a calling. Um, and I feel very privileged to do it. So, um, you know, I, I like the challenges of revision arthroplasty. I like the challenges of nerve work and tendon transfers. Um, and the reality is um, I like connecting with my patients and providing them a service 
that gets them uh, back to their either baseline of health or improves their function. So, but to answer your question, total shoulder arthroplasty or anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is very high on the list of surgeries that I really enjoy performing. Excellent. I think, um, I think that was a great explanation. And speaking of total shoulder arthroplasty being the best thing that you love to, things that you love to enjoy doing, um, I wanted to, who, who gets a, a total shoulder arthroplasty? What patients, I mean, we're going to move into the talk. So what patients get total shoulders? Like what are the indications for it and what people should not be getting total shoulder arthroplasty, Scott? Yeah, so we'll uh, first start with people uh, that are indicated for shoulder arthroplasty. Typically, I would say it's uh, the patient that has lifestyle limiting pain secondary to degenerative joint disease or an arthropathy of the glenohumeral joint. And classically, that's uh, osteoarthritis, uh, but also rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, and many of the other arthropathies um, are very appropriate. And I always tell patients in my discussion with them, the person that decides if and when uh, a patient should have uh, an anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is the patient. Um, I uh, pride myself on not treating x-rays, but treating people. And so sometimes you look at an x-ray and say, wow, um, you know, that's end-stage arthritis. They've obliterated the joint space. They have large marginal osteophytosis. They have a lot of subchondral cysts. There's a lot of wear, um, you know, and you go in and meet and discuss with the patient. And they say, yeah, I have some aches and pains, but uh, I'm retired. I'm able to do most of the things. I can sleep on my shoulder. I can reach for things. It bothers me. Uh, but um, either uh, oral medication or an injection really manages my symptoms. Um, and other times you uh, look at an x-ray and you say, yeah, this patient uh, has joint space narrowing and marginal osteophytes, um, but it's not the worst uh, radiograph I've ever seen. And then you go in the room and they really have debilitating stiffness, debilitating pain. They can't enjoy um, their hobbies. They can't, they can't work. They can't play with their kids or grandkids. Um, and those people that have lifestyle limiting pain that have exhausted non-operative treatment, I think are an excellent patient population that can do very well with shoulder arthroplasty. Obviously patients with open wounds, active infections, um, uh, people with acute fractures, um, uh, uh, people that have uh, ongoing uh, bone tumors uh, or uh, uh, septic arthrosis would not be indicated for uh, at least um, until they cleared those pathologies, uh, shoulder arthroplasty. Now, uh, we, you know, anytime when typically when you read and, you know, you look upon everything and when they talk about total shoulders, they'll say that they have to have an intact rotator cuff. Uh, why is that important with total shoulder arthroplasty? So um, total shoulder arthroplasty or probably, in my opinion, more accurately, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty um, requires the soft tissue of the shoulder girdle to balance the implant. It's an anatomic prosthesis and the anatomy around the shoulder uh, has a lot of range of motion um, and relies very heavily on uh, the labrum, compression concavity, uh, the rotator cuff and deltoid to balance the shoulder and make the shoulder stable. And so if the rotator cuff is not functioning or it is torn and unable to function, uh, achieving a balancing of the, shock, uh, of the soft tissues 
is improbable and impossible. Uh, and uh, very predictably, those patients don't do well. Now, uh, that does not mean that people that have rotator cuff tears cannot have shoulder arthroplasty or that people that have previously had rotator cuff repairs and have gone on or concomitantly had arthrosis of the glenohumeral joint aren't eligible. And we, on rare occasion, will actually do a rotator cuff repair at the same setting that we do uh, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty. Now, um, this uh, should be a repairable rotator cuff and there's uh, different things, uh, tissue quality, atrophy, fatty infiltration, the size of the tear that would all play into that, but a small to medium-sized rotator cuff tear in someone that has uh, a good likelihood of healing that tear is eligible to have a rotator cuff repair done at the same time as a total shoulder. It does change the postoperative rehabilitation in my practice, uh, but certainly it's something that I uh, discuss as an option with people that have small uh, to medium-sized repairable rotator cuffs. So I guess the key word is irreparable rotator cuff tears, because like, just like you said, there's some rotator cuffs where you can just repair it, you know, intraoperatively. But if it's something that cannot be repaired, then that kind of leads to your soft tissue balancing. Just like you previously said, this is kind of a soft tissue balancing procedure with some implants. That's correct. And to expand on that a little bit, um, just because we can technically repair something doesn't mean it has a high likelihood of healing. And so I think that's where really taking into consideration and really scrutinizing, especially advanced imaging, to look at the muscle bellies of the rotator cuff, especially the subscapularis uh, and infraspinatus that we really need for uh, the coupling mechanics of the shoulder and seeing, is there fatty infiltration? Is there atrophy? Does it involve the anterior or the posterior cable? Is there retraction? How chronic it is? I think all of those things uh, play a very important role in decision-making when offering uh, total shoulder arthroplasty. Perfect. Perfect. And yeah, that, that's, that is like a very high yield topic uh, or a concept to understand about the, the need for a, a working rotator cuff. So I'm glad that you broke that down as, as well as you did. Um, but as you mentioned, as far as imaging, when you're considering doing this type of surgery, a total shoulder for a patient, what type of imaging are you, are you getting for these patients? So most patients will come to me and uh, will typically have an MRI already. Um, and uh, that gives uh, very, very good data. Um, but the one unfortunate thing right now with the implant systems that I use is the preoperative templating software requires a CT scan. So I still, uh, on the overwhelming majority of patients that I'm planning for a total shoulder arthroplasty, obtain a CT scan, even if they've already had an MRI. And those two advanced imaging modalities do give me different information. The MRI gives me very good information about the rotator cuff. Now, if a patient doesn't have an MRI, my uh, advanced imaging modality of choice is a CT scan. And I believe that on the soft tissue windows of a CT scan, um, especially if you're used to uh, scrutinizing and looking, uh, you can very accurately uh, gauge fatty infiltration and atrophy of the rotator cuff. So 
I will often tell patients that the reason we're getting a CT scan is yes, to look at the bony anatomy, to look for uh, acquired retroversion or uh, asymmetric wear of the glenoid uh, and to look at glenoid bone stock and to measure humeral re uh, retroversion, but also it allows us to look at the soft tissue. I can, I can uh, see uh, the superior rotator cuff and the anterior rotator cuff um, uh, very accurately on a CT scan. Um, and if there's a question about that, oftentimes I'll order a CT arthrogram and that will very accurately allow us uh, to look at that. I typically would use a CT arthrogram in patients uh, that have a pacemaker, loose metal, shrap metal, things of that nature that can't have MRIs. But my uh, advanced imaging modality of choice uh, for preoperative templating is a CT scan. Awesome. Now, awesome. I'm glad that you brought that up. I was actually just recently teaching uh, young Cody about that. Hey, you can actually see the, the rotator cuff pretty well on a CT if you, if you look for it. And, uh, so I'm glad that you broke that down for him. He's still kind of getting those basic concepts. Uh, this guy. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the uh, classic Goutelier um, yeah. classification is validated on this, on, on the CT. Uh, and I, right. I think uh, some people um, uh, forget that uh, that was the original description. Yep. I think later on they got a little bit more fancy and added in some, uh, some change some things so that you know it could be done on MRI as well. But yeah, That's originally right. it was on the CT. So you know, is there what about just basic X-rays? Is there what what X-rays are you getting as well for these patients? And uh, while we're on that, is there any classification systems that you use when you're looking at that or anything like that? Absolutely. Um, so uh, my classic series is four views. It would be a um, AP view, uh, a Gracie view, uh, an axillary, and then a transcap Y. Um, uh, I don't typically get a Bernagau. Um, uh, I know uh, 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 a, a lot of my colleagues, uh, especially those that train trained in Europe, specifically France or Switzerland, uh, like that view. I think it, it's a great view. It's, it's just not something that our x-ray technicians are very facile with. And uh, to be honest, I, I believe that um, the axillary views that we get are, are accurate at showing what I'm looking for. Um, so uh, the important thing about the series uh, th that I get is uh, in my Gracie view, uh, the patient is actively abducting or firing their deltoid to about 30 degrees. And what that allows me to see is um, it accentuates proximal migration. So in certain patients, you may say, well, on, on the X-ray, they look very centered. There's no proximal migration. The chromohumeral interval looked normal. And then you get the MRI, and all of a sudden, you see this huge amount of proximal migration. And the reason for that is that typically X-rays are obtained in the upright position, and the weight of the arm through gravity uh, does not allow the proximal migration. When the patient is supine for the MRI, gravity is taken out of that, and that accentuates that. So to actually pick up on that before I have advanced imaging, I ask the patient to fire their deltoid, uh, which takes the weight of the arm out of it and actually accentuates that. And, and that's best seen on the Gracie uh, by noted, noticing that the interval at the top of the glenoid compared to the bottom of the glenoid, so a superior glenoid, that that interval between the humeral head and the glenoid is a different measurement 
than it is inferiorly. And so in a concentrically reduced shoulder without wear, those two measurements should be the same. The other thing that I often uh, becomes a trick question uh, uh, with trainees is when you're getting an AP x-ray, which really should be perpendicular to your AC joint, and it looks like a gray sheet, what should you be thinking of? And the answer to that is you should be thinking about the glenoid being retroverted and substantially retroverted that the glenoid and the AC joint are in the same plane so that an AP looks like a gray sheet. So um, that's one little tip that I would have when you're looking at x-rays. If you're looking at an AP and you can see right down the, the uh, joint line of the glenohumeral joint, you have to have a very high index of suspicion that that person has a great deal of retroversion of the glenoid, either acquired or congenital. And, and since we're touching about the glenoid, um, are there any classification systems that you use, uh, you know, to yeah, preoperative planning or? Yeah, not so much for preoperative planning. For communication for research purposes, Samuelson Prieto, uh, which measures the size of the uh, inferior osteophyte, the marginal osteophyte that is the classic billy goat's beard that's described radiographically and that depends on the measurement of that uh, less than three millimeters three millimeters to six millimeters greater than six millimeters um, and then there's all kinds of descriptive classifications of wear patterns on the glenoid uh, the, the most commonly used and the one that we talk about uh, is you know jills walsh's classification uh, where he classified you know uh, uh, asymmetric wear uh, which would be your b glenoids and then uh, centered wear, uh, which uh, would be your A-type glenoids, which is depicted um, here uh, diagrammatically. Um, and there have been some additions uh, to this. Uh, there's now uh, a, a B3 and D, and, uh, but those all have to do with a severe retroversion. And we can talk a little bit about um, how, um, important that is in not only intraoperative but preoperatively thinking about what your uh, implant options and choices are when faced with a patient uh, that has a great, uh, a great deal of uh, retroversion. The, the, the one I would say that most shoulder and elbow surgeons um, have the most consternation about is the B2 glenoid uh, and that's uh, a glenoid that has biconcavity uh, where there's a, a paleo uh, uh, glenoid in the front, which is the original glenoid, and then a neoglenoid, which is the new glenoid, uh, where the humeral head wears um, asymmetrically and they get acquired retroversion, and then there's a ridge between the two. Um, and, and that's typically associated or, or uh, concomitantly patients will have posterior subluxation of the humeral head um, which is typically judged on a percentage. So um, a centered head is 50%. Uh, so if you say a patient uh, on their CT scan or their MRI demonstrates a 80% posterior subluxation, that's actually 30% uh, from the center line. Okay. And, you know, it seems like we're hint hinting a lot at how important the glenoid is when considering uh, arthroplasty surgery for patients of the for their shoulder. Can we go over some of the relevant anatomy for, for the glenoid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
the, the reason that uh, we spend so much time thinking and talking and discussing about the glenoid uh, side uh, for anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is that uh, any chain is only as strong as, as its weakest link. And typically, uh, the complications have been on the glenoid side. Uh, and when we think of it, uh, aseptic loosening is something that we worry about. Uh, but there's a lot of important anatomic things to note. So the long head of the biceps inserts on the superior pole of the glenoid and provides a very nice landmark, not for perfect 12 o'clock, but it's slightly posterior to that. Uh, and so I'll often um, uh, intraoperatively use that as a reference line for my um, superior to inferior axis um, where that biceps inserts. Um, inferiorly, you actually have the long head of the triceps, which we often uh, will recess, and especially during reverse arthroplasty, will recess uh, so that we can get inferiorly. Um, typically, the glenoid has a um, a pear shape. Uh, we all classically learned the inverted pear shape, which is associated with attritional uh, bone loss uh, from uh, uh, chronic or recurrent um, anterior inferior instability about the shoulder. Uh, and patients that have a um, uh, history of instability and go on to have uh, a, a post-stabilization um, arthritis or go on to have arthritis because they remain unstable, uh, pose a, a, a challenge because they uh, morphologically have a different shaped glenoid and we worry about bony support uh, for any implant that you may want to put in. Um, and then the, the base of the coracoid uh, is, a, is a very good uh, landmark intraoperatively. Um, and then obviously uh, the uh, anterior and and, and posterior uh, to, uh, to the vault, uh, the, the uh, cortex uh, can be used for referencing and some referencing guides will actually have a small attachment that looks like a curved finger that can actually rest on the anterior glenoid as a landmark to use uh, for center axis. Um, and then um, obviously you have uh, some uh, parameters that are, that are written out here. Um, a mean sizing uh, it can be helpful, but um, you know a, a very large male glenoid that has uh, significant uh, medialization and wear can be very large. And then uh, on the other side of the spectrum, you have a, a very um, a petite woman uh, that uh, ha does not have a great deal of medialization, may have a very small glenoid. Uh, but I think it is important to note that the average person is slightly retroverted, depending on what you read, uh, anywhere between, uh, you know, one to seven degrees of retroversion. I classically uh, kind of cite uh, to my trainees about four degrees of retroversion, but uh, different studies. Uh, but uh, the uh, basic understanding here is that the human body has a slightly retroverted glenoid. Now, what, what are some things that we need to consider regarding glenoid? And, or I guess, how do we address certain, um, certain different type of glenoids, right? Like, how do, sure. we, how do we address a glenoid that's retroverted? Like, what does that do for our, uh, for our planning for patients undergoing total soldiers versus if they have a big defect or, you know, like a hard, a, a large bank or lesion per se? Or, you know, what, what, what are some things that, like, how do we manage those? Yeah, absolutely. So, these, these, are, these are the reasons that preoperative planning and templating are so very critical and important because 
they get you to start thinking and troubleshooting and coming up with contingency plans before you ever get to the operating room. I think one of the fallacies is to get into the operating room and run into some of these hurdles and have to think on the fly. And I think we have a lot less clarity at that time that if we think about what are the things that are gonna be challenging, um, we can plan for that. And, and so uh, in my practice, especially as I alluded to, the B2 glenoid is something that I talk about, worry about, teach about all the time. Um, and a great deal of that has to do with the fact that you see that um, morphology in, in, in large men, you know, uh, men that have been weightlifters. Um, and so they have a big deltoid. Um, they have a lot of muscle bulk. Um, and, and so visualization of the glenoid is going to be challenging. I personally use something called a deltoid or a brown retractor that wraps around the greater tuberosity uh, and, and uh, helps get me visualization um, in the beginning. And then when I'm working on the glenoid, um, uh, classically, a lot of people will use a Fukuda retractor, and I find this to be a little bit cumbersome. So I actually use two bank art retractors in the back and a broad single bank art retractor in the front, and I work around that. But um, the bank art retractors are somewhat malleable, but you'll find in a very large man with a large deltoid um, that's very retroverted that you can't get your hand posterior enough uh, to be able to uh, drill your central axis pin in line with the axis of the scapula. And so um, that may be an instance where you want to uh, send away for a custom guide. Many of the implant companies have programs where you upload the CT scan and then you can you can build either custom implants or custom guides that help you set your uh, central axis pin in challenging cases so that where you lose bony references or where you're going to have difficulty um, visualizing or getting the correct uh, vector to put your instruments in uh, that you have um, uh, an implant that can snap onto known landmarks. And, and so um, when I know I have uh, a retroverted glenoid that's say 25, 30 degrees of retroversion, and I've decided that I'm going to um, either do a uh, full wedge augment, uh, bone grafting, hemi wedge augment, step augment, um, inlay glenoid, any one of those things are your, in your armamentarium. Uh, but the key to that is you have to be able to implant those. So you have to get visualization. So what I always say is never sacrifice glenoid exposure because that's when um, you won't be able to put the implant where you want to put it or where you preoperatively templated it. So um, the, the two tenets of shoulder arthroplasty surgery, in my opinion, are axillary nerve management and glenoid exposure. And if you can master those, you can be a very elegant and sophisticated shoulder and elbow surgeon and really have a solution to all complex problems. Now, the other thing that you've alluded here is glenoid bone stock. You know, uh, in the past we say, well, if you don't have enough glenoid bone stock uh, to accept uh, a glenoid component uh, or a, a reverse shoulder arthroplasty component, um, you would uh, classically put in a hemi-arthroplasty or graft and come back and do a stage. Uh, but there are now custom implants that you can upload CT scans uh, that do um, a reconstruction of the vault and actually 
um, uh, engineers find uh, enough bone stock to put secure fixation in, uh, and it's a custom implant. Now, those are obviously are rare cases um, that require a lot of planning, and they require a lot of time uh, because the company uh, has to create a custom implant. So that's not a surgery you can offer in a week or two. That's something you have to plan sometimes for several months for. Um, but you know, the days of, well, you don't, not, you don't have enough bone stock to implant anything, uh, we have advanced past that a little bit. And that's not to say that hemiarthroplasty might not still be the best option for some of these pay people uh, as a good pain relieving um, surgery. But the drawback has always been they may get good pain relief, but their function may uh, be quite variable uh, because of the biomechanics of the shoulder being so altered, especially with that much medialization. All right. So just to recap, so some of the high points and things that you were saying were that, you know, patients, you know, that have a, a retroverted glenoid uh, or even th those B2s, some of the big things are going to be exposure and visualization uh, of the entire glenoid. And then you also touched on, you know, axillary nerve uh, yep. uh, management being another essential part to having a, a good outcome or at least, a, you know, a good, a good case. Um, so to expand on that and hammer that point home, because I see what you're getting at, which is um, wh what are the strategies that we have for dealing with a retroverted glenoid? Uh, and so in, in my opinion, the strategies that are out there, uh, one is you can uh, do kind of play it as it lies. So you can say, well, the patient has been living with a posteriorly subluxed humeral head and a retroverted glenoid. And really what I want to do is resurface the joint and uh, allow the anatomy to stay where it is because the chances that I can appropriately rebalance the soft tissue aren't great. And the chances that it wants to continue to posteriorly luxate after I do my arthroplasty are high. And that's the play it as it lies. So you can do an inlay glenoid and there's several out on the market. And that's basically... Uh, you put a glenoid into the vault, but doesn't cover the face of the glenoid. And then you could uh, do a humeral head, you could do a resurfacing uh, implant, and basically you would allow that patient to stay posteriorly luxated and say, we're relieving your pain with this, and we're going to allow your anatomy be where it is. Okay, so that's one strategy. The other strategy that especially is used often when the amount of retroversion is not substantial and say between 15 and maybe less than 20 or 23 degrees or so would be reaming down the high side. So you say, well, I will correct or partially correct the retroversion uh, uh, by putting my axis pin in a manner that I preferentially ream the anterior cortex to the posterior cortex. And I would say that's a very good strategy. And for the most part, people would say, yeah, I'm not trying to get back to the one degree. I'm trying to get back to about five to 10 degrees of retroversion, and I'm willing to accept that. So once you get past that, then you say, well, okay, now there's 30 degrees of retroversion. What are my options? Well, your options are you could um, go to a reverse. Your options are you could um, use a bone graft, uh, a structural cortical bone, and there's many places that you could get that. Um, and you would secure that and then uh, correct the retroversion and, and put a, a normal implant on that. 
or uh, you could um, have implants available that are designed uh, to have a posterior augment and that uh, there's multiple versions of that but we have a hemi wedge out there there's wedge augments out there full wedge augments there's step um, augments um, and so uh, all of those things give you a myriad of tools uh, when you're uh, dealing with this so for me personally it depends on a lot on how much retroversion how much posterior luxation and what are my goals for this patient and i've out of all those surgeries that i've met uh, that i've mentioned i've done all of them uh, and so um, i think it's important that you don't treat every patient with retroversion with uh, the the same solution some patients um, are ideally suited for one or other of those uh, myriad of choices that i mentioned now the one thing I'll also hint on and touch on briefly is the most challenging patient um, in my practice is the young person that has severe glenohumeral arthrosis. So think about the 35-year-old person that comes that has end-stage glenohumeral arthrosis. That is the person we've not come up with a reliable, predictable surgical solution for. Uh, and in that patient, we've done hemiarthroplasty. We've done uh, um, Dr. Matson's technique of ream and run uh, out of the University of Washington. Um, and what that is, is basically hemiarthroplasty where you do glenoid preparation uh, minus actually implanting a glenoid. So you actually ream the glenoid you do the same preparation with the labral and soft tissue releases of the inferior middle glenohumeral ligaments that you would normally do, but you don't implant a glenoid. Uh, and then uh, you have uh, hemicaps, uh, resurfacing inlay glenoids. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, historical research uh, that has gone into uh, soft tissue interposition arthroplasty which unfortunately uh, the literature has not borne out to be a, a good or lasting option, unfortunately. Uh, and and uh, we've used um, a myriad of, of different graft options, none of which have, uh, have uh, performed very superiorly. Uh, and so um, I, I would say the most difficult patient uh, for me uh, uh, for anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is the very young patient uh, because uh, of the wear uh, that we worry about uh, that could occur uh, while they're still a, a relatively young age. Awesome, awesome. And you, you actually did go through a lot of the different uh, implants that you, that you may uh, use for different situations. But just to, it, it, could we just go over some of the basic implants that you, that you should keep in mind and that may even be high yield? on some of the, the board style questions and things like that when considering uh, the glenoid portion of this procedure? Yeah, uh, so you know, typically um, the, the classic uh, anatomic shoulder arthroplasty is going to be uh, a stemmed uh, humeral component mated uh, with a metal humeral head that has either um, uh, eccentric options or is completely concentric and that all depends on what system you're using and what generation of the system uh, you know we had uh, uh, Dr. Neer um, 
had his monoblock uh, non-proprietary uh, implants that were available. And since that design, we've continued to engineer more and more modularity uh, into that so that we can more um, either appropriately or accurately mimic um, individual patients' anatomy. But, uh, and then uh, mated with that classically um, is an all poly uh, cemented glenoid. And there have been many uh, variations on this metal back glenoid, um, uh, anchor peg press fit glenoids, um, uh, uh, several of which are, are depicted here uh, in the images on your slide. Um, and, and so the, the, the image that you have here is, is probably what I use the most, which is an anchor peg glenoid. And that's a hybrid where um, either the central or the peripheral, the system I use, it's the central uh, peg, um, is a press fit. Uh, and um, different people will debate differently whether there's uh, ingrowth potential. But I think uh, the one thing that's not debated is that at time zero, there is a press fit component um, that uh, either the central or the peripheral pegs is held uh, tightly or snugly into place. Uh, and then the peripheral or the central peg, depending on what system you're using, is cemented in so that you're using kind of a hybrid. I personally have not implanted a lot of keels based on the long-term data of keels versus pegs, um, but there are uh, uh, keel designs that are still out there. Um, and those uh, from time to time are appropriate when you have a, a contained vault bone loss. Um, a keel uh, glenoid may be a good option. Um, but we have published um, uh, recently a paper where we looked at uh, anchor peg glenoids and uh, looked at the press fit at time zero uh, and investigated whether uh, the cement in the other pegs um, needs, uh, has enough strength uh, to actually lift or push the glenoid off as the cement expands, getting to the question of do you have to hold pressurization on the glenoid until the cement cures. And what we found in a cadaveric study is that the anchor peg press fit is strong enough that once you implant the glenoid, you no longer have to let the cement cure. You can move on to the humeral side or finish your case, depending on the order you do things, uh, without having to wait that eight to 14 minutes to allow the cement to cure. Um, so big picture, I would still say that the standard of care in this country and the most popular um, uh, total shoulder arthroplasty being put in is an all poly cemented glenoid mated with a metal stem and metal humeral head. That being said, I myself in my practice and uh, many of my colleagues um, have done uh, many stemless implants and we can talk a little bit about um, the European experience which has uh, been going on much longer. We now have um, uh, I believe it's up to four stemless implants on the market uh, here in the United States. Um, and and uh, there, there are varying uh, pros and cons uh, uh, to that. Now that, that was excellent. And I think I even saw some, some test questions that asked about um, keels versus pegs in the glenoid component. Uh, and, yeah, and if, if you it. see a question about that, I would choose peg over keel. There, yep. There are very few scenarios under which the keel would outperform a peg. Yep, and that that's exactly what the uh, what the what the answer was. 
Um, I think that was excellent. Is there anything else as far as the glenoid component that you think uh, is important to know before we just quickly move on to the humoral side of the component? Uh, one of your slides showed a, a picture of uh, several of the um, shapes of the glenoid, um, a more oval shape, a more pear shape. Um, and the reality is we don't have good uh, level one evidence um, uh, that guides us on which one of these shapes uh, acts superior. And, and I would say in my own practice, um, shape C and shape B would be the two most common that I implant. Uh, and I use different companies um, for different surgeries or when I need um, uh, uh, different solutions for patients. Uh, and so I use both B and C, and in my own practice, I've not seen uh, them perform differently. Um, but we'll need long-term data to know, is a pear-shaped glenoid, which is slightly more anatomic appearing, um, uh, clinically more uh, relevant uh, than uh, the more classic oval shape. And, and since we're just on that, can you quickly talk about the con congruity? Does conforming versus non-conforming, is there any difference between the two? Yeah. So... Um, the native shoulder, if you think of the shape of the glenoid, uh, think about even when you're doing shoulder arthroscopy, the glenoid uh, is fairly flat, meaning it has a very large radius of curvature, and the humeral head is much more curved, it has a smaller radius of curvature. Uh, and so um, the original shoulder designs um, harken back to what we thought a little bit more about knees. Uh, which is a much more uh, congruent or conforming, meaning the radius of curvature of the glenoid and the radius of curvature of the humeral head matched. Uh, and uh, what we found it, over time is that that did not mimic what happens in the shoulder. In the, in the shoulder, there is uh, both a pivot, a roll, and a slide. And so um, the exact range of the appropriate radius of curvature is debated in different literature um, uh, will quote different things, but I think most people agree that the range is probably between four millimeters and up to 10 millimeters. And certainly the smaller number would mean you're more congruent. And I would say most people would say you don't wanna be more congruent than about 3.5. And then on the other end, um, you also don't want too much incongruity because that can lead to uh, luxation and so different implant companies have different um, combinations so the combination of um, uh, radial uh, uh, ra a radius of curvature mismatch between the glenoid and humerus changes from what size glenoid you select and what size humeral head um, and so for instance uh, with the Zimmer Biomet system um, you can pair them or it's um, advised that you pair uh, the, uh, between 3.5 and 8 in their system. In Tournier, it's much more variable. You can go all the way from 1.4 millimeters to 24.8 millimeters. With Medacta, it's between 2 and 10. So there does seem to be this range that seems to be the ideal range. In my opinion, it's somewhere between 4 and 8 millimeters. But what we do understand is um, if, you, if that number is too small, meaning the radius of curvature uh, does not have enough mismatch, then the shoulder won't behave uh, like a native shoulder does. And there is some research that the, the number that most accurately um, reproduces what the native shoulder does in a non-arthritic shoulder is 
between 3.5 and 4 millimeters. Okay. And yes, sir, all those are high yield points that I'm hoping everyone is grabbing from all the, uh, the pearls you're dropping for us. On Just before we, I guess before we get too far to the end here, what uh, is there any other uh, high yield uh, topics that we probably should discuss on the, uh, as far as the humorous Im humoral implants? Um, well, uh, the one topic we haven't touched on, which is something that um, I spend a great deal thinking about and worrying about is um, subscapularis management. Uh, and so uh, the three techniques classically and, and now a fourth technique, uh, which would be a subscap sparing technique, but classically the three techniques to deal with the subscapularis are a peel, a tenotomy, uh, and a lesser tuberosity osteotomy. And, and there's pros and cons and people advocate for all of those. Um, and uh, uh, to be honest, there's good data that uh, people can support any one of those three decisions. I personally, in the overwhelming majority of cases, and now this is changing the more I do stemless implants, but um, classically, I always did lesser tuberosity osteotomies. Now, some people would say, well, you know, uh, peels and tenotomies do just as well, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, but my reasoning is uh, one that's fairly practical, which is I can't see a peel and I can't see a tenotomy failure on x-ray, and what I get postoperatively are x-rays and serial x-rays. So in order to um, fully confirm that there's been failure of the subscapularis uh, on x-ray, you need to see luxation or frank dislocation out the front of the shoulder. However, with an LTO, if I see interval displacement either at the two-week or the six-week um, x-ray, I know that, that I, I've lost secure fixation and I can intervene um, before the shoulder luxates forward because um, the truth of the matter is we do not have a good surgical solution for total shoulder arthroplasties that do not have um, a working subscapularis or an intact subscapularis. The native shoulder, we've done uh, lat tendon transfer, pec tendon transfer, partial pec tendon transfer, uh, but in J.P. Warner and Bassam El Hassan's uh, work uh, at Mass General, the, the single subset population that did very poorly with tendon transfers for subscapularis insufficiency were people with anatomic shoulders. So that is a problem we don't have a great solution for. So anytime in orthopedics when we don't have a solution, I want to avoid that problem. Right. And one of my ways to avoid that problem is to do an LTO so I can intervene early. Uh, now, Serena Nandari um, and the group at uh, Thomas Jefferson at, at Rothman just looked at um, uh, subscap uh, repairs in, in shoulder arthroplasty. And, and so I would urge your readers to, to look at that in, in the latest uh, journal, Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Um, so there's a lot of work going into subscap management. And some people will um, fix over a small plate. We saw an x-ray uh, where that occurred. And George Athwell has some very good data where he compared LTO to peel. And I would say my one uh, caution or caveat to saying, uh, concluding from his research that a peel does as well as an LTO is not everyone is doing a peel with the sophisticated technique that Dr. Athwell has advocated and used on his patients. 
So you have to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. But I think you'll get a lot of questions uh, about subscapularis management, and that that's kind of a high yield topic when you're talking about anatomic shoulder arthroplasty. And I think you I think you just mentioned it, but things that you would do to intervene if you did that let's do rosti osteotomy and and you see they come to your clinic in a couple of weeks and you notice that, you know, that it may be kind of spreading apart. Is your intervention, you may possibly go back and play it or, you know, put some screws or what, what, what is yeah. your intervention at that time? Yep. So typically I would go back in and um, uh, I would fix it down with bone anchors because the, uh, the original repair that I do, uh, the sutures go around the stem or the what we would call the nucleus of a stemless implant. So they're actually um, anchored into the proximal humerus by the shoulder implant. And so obviously I do not want to remove the shoulder humeral implant to do my repair. So at that point, what I would do is I would put suture fixation uh, into the subscapularis over the top of my LTO and then laterally put rows of anchors um, uh, much like uh, a double row rotator cuff so that I have uh, anchors medially, anchors laterally, and then a suture bridge over the top of that um, wafer of bone. I think that's all. I think that was great. And, you know, um, and I'm glad that you brought up, you know, the management of the subscap too, because that, that's a big, that uh, is a big part of total shoulders. And I actually see a lot of questions on it as well. And just like you said, you, you know, you may actually see that in, in, in practice and you want, definitely want to avoid something that you don't have a good, uh, a good fix for. Just like you said, you can't really uh, do as many of the tendon transfers in total shoulder patients as you can in non-total shoulder patients. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just moving on, um, any high points that you'd like to, to touch, quickly touch on as far as regarding the humoral side of things? Uh, yeah, I would say the one, the one, um, the one classic uh, parameter that we uh, think about the most and uh, technically want to ensure is correct uh, is uh, the uh, proximal humeral retroversion, and it's very variable in 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 the uh, in our population. Um, as you have uh, written here, 25 to 45 degrees, that's a 20 degree difference. And so I will typically uh, put people in the amount of retroversion that is their native retroversion. And sometimes that's 45 degrees, sometimes that's 20 degrees. Um, so I will typically try and recreate their uh, a retroversion. Some people will just use a, uh, a cutting guide that, that they set their retroversion. Um, but what I would say is, whatever implant uh, system that you use, be very facile with uh, accurately measuring the amount of retroversion. And um, the amount of retroversion uh, that we're looking to put different implant systems, for instance, contrasting uh, in a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, I'm usually putting people in uh, between zero and 20, shooting for about 10 degrees of retroversion. And for an anatomic shoulder, I'm probably more on the order of between 35 and 40 degrees. And so um, you, want to, you want to know how the implant system you use accurately shows that. And there, there are guide rods and uh, some implant systems will use two guide rods, one guide rod, uh, but just be very facile uh, with the way you measure uh, uh, because you don't want to implant uh, your humeral stem 
in in too much anaversion. Okay. Now you could, you may still be retroverted, but you may only be five degrees retroverted when you actually wanted to put them in forty five degrees of retroversion, uh, and 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 that can have consequences on the clinical performance of a shoulder. Um, so uh, for me. Uh, the humeral head cut is, is very important, uh, both for inclination and for version. Uh, and I want to be very accurate with that. And so um, the classic thing that always comes up with is that you have to take off the marginal osteophytes that are formed on the humerus to accurately understand uh, where the, the, the native articular margin is to put your humeral cut. Uh, because if you, um, if you, make your cut before you take them off, the tendency is to go into too much varus, and that has its own sets of consequences. Okay, perfect, perfect. And I think, uh, I feel like you, I was gonna ask about complications, but I actually think you did a great job kind of going through them uh, throughout the talk. We talked about, you know, you have to worry about glenoid loosening. We talked about, uh, you have to worry about, you know, your subscapularis repair. Um, other than that, I know infection is always something you have to look out for. And, you know, in, in shoulder, uh, P acnes, which is actually, I think, uh, C acnes now, yeah. uh, is, is actually pretty, pretty um, high yield for a shoulder surgery. And it comes up late. So for everyone listening, don't forget that. It comes up much later than some of the other, uh, other bacteria that you, you get on culture. Um, but before we, we finish, I did just want to ask this, and we'll probably wrap it up after that. As far as post-op and rehab, what can these patients not do? How soon are you letting them, you know, kind of range their, their shoulder and things like that? Just kind of what is your usual post-operative course? Yeah, so I let them range immediately. So they're allowed forward elevation actively in the plane of the scapula uh, as much as they want post-op day two or three. So I typically use... Uh, either a long-acting interscaling block or an indwelling interscaling catheter uh, that works uh, for between 48 and 72 hours. So once they get back protective sensation and motor function, they come out of the sling and they're allowed adducted external rotation actively, and they're allowed forward elevation in the plane of the scapula. What they're restricted from is reaching behind the back, so internal rotation behind the back, lifting more than three to five pounds or weight bearing. And most commonly that would be getting up out of a chair or opening a heavy door. And the reason they have those restrictions for 12 weeks is for the subscapularis uh, protection. So I want the LTO to heal. And so I protect them from those movements. Um, and very, very infrequently, but after six weeks, um, you could still see some interval displacement if you don't have full bony healing. So I do restrict them until 12 weeks uh, until I have a radiograph that shows that the LTO has uh, bony healing or has no interval displacement. And then, uh, then we take those restrictions away. And after that, really, um, the, it's progressive strengthening. And I tell them that I don't want them doing... Um, upper body uh, repetitive weightlifting. So I don't really want a total shoulder go back to bench pressing, but I'm under no illusion that some of my active younger patients uh, that are secret service agents, um, SWAT team members, Chicago police officers, uh, active duty military, 
that they don't go back to that very active lifestyle, especially when their shoulder feels so much better. And so uh, I have patients in all of those professions that I just mentioned um, that have shoulder replacements. And I have a SWAT officer on the Chicago police that has bilateral shoulder arthroplasties that is back to doing a very um, rigorous and demanding job. Man. Wow. That's, that's wild. And uh, you know, that's, that's crazy. The, um, you know, you always like to think the effects that orthopedics and really taking care of patients can have and how you can um, get patients back to living, you know, their life or at least to the activity level that they want to. Uh, but Dr. Salazar, this has been a, um, a great, great podcast episode. I think it's been a great talk. I, I know I learned a bunch already um, about total shoulder arthroplasty. I know Jay has been taking notes the whole time. He, he never heard of half this stuff before. <laughs> well, how the secret is that? <laughs> uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking. Um, well, I appreciate you guys. I think what you're doing here is really important. Uh, and, um, you know, it's really a, a novel way of uh, delivering didactic education to a very uh, cop- captive and interesting audience. Uh, I'll, j- I'll just put a plug for my program. You know, uh, I'm at uh, Loyola University here in Chicago. Um, and uh, so for anyone that's interested uh, in ever uh, coming to see some interesting or complex cases, spending time with us doing shoulder and elbow, uh, or, um, you know, coming to work with us, being partners or being trained by us, either in upper extremity fellowship or coming to be a resident with us, uh, I would just uh, um, ask you to to go online to our website, um, uh, check us out and, and contact us. I'm more than happy uh, to chat about our program, our experiences at our program. Uh, and uh, as a hometown uh, Chicago guy, I'm, I'm very biased that I live in the greatest city in the world, at least in the summertime. Uh, so we're always happy to have people come visit us, uh, check out the program and see the, the great things that we're doing for our patients at Loyola. Perfect. And to everyone listening, Thank you all and see you next week.